Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Amy Fuller, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Accenture. On the show today, we talk about her scope of her role, which is massive, over a thousand marketers across the world, and Accenture itself is 469,000 employees across 200 cities globally. What does the CMO role look like, and how do you tame that complexity when you're operating at that scope? We talk about what's important to her in her role as CMO and, and helping to define the issues the organization can take a stand on. We talk about the bridge building and collaboration that's necessary for CMOs in that new CMO role as a, as a collaborator in chief, so to speak. And then we get, have a little fun at the end talking about her experiences in a almost desolate island and at an early age and learning to be resilient and driving her spirit of innovation. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Amy Fuller. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alan. It's good to be here. Well, I, one thing I love to do is just to kind of go back a little bit and learn a little bit about your path and your background. So wh- where did you start your career? Well, and I will attempt to do the short and interesting version <laughs> instead of the long, boring version. But um, sure. I'm a huge fan of liberal arts education, and I graduated from Bryn Mawr College with a degree in French, not particularly useful. 
but had ended up being hired as assistant director of public information at the college where I'd been writing press releases. And it ended up being the ideal first job in terms of lots of responsibility and no resources, which is the definition of how you learn. And from there on to Madison Avenue about a year later and spent 20 plus years running businesses at big ad agencies in New York, including Ogilvy and YNR. Had a client side stint at MasterCard running consumer marketing globally. Had a great stint at Deloitte Global running the brand globally, which led me pretty much to my current role, which I assumed about a year and a half ago at Accenture. I got it. Well, I mean, going from liberal arts to agency to client side to consulting now, what was the motivation between the switches, at least between those three areas, if you don't mind? Well, I can't pretend to have thought it out in advance. And when I give people advice now, which I do a lot of, I always identify some threads that were very useful to me. And one was to always work with world-class brands. And so that thread of world-class brands has followed me my entire career. And it was by doing that that I was able to pick up a lot of learnings about how you learn about consumer behavior, how you look at market research, how you make a big impact in the marketplace, and how you work globally. Gotcha. Well, you you are like your own Venn diagram, if you will, with the industry changing between marketing, advertising, and consultancies. How have these past experiences been in each of those business models? How how have they taught you? What have they taught you? Or or you know how have you learned from those different types of experiences? Well, Alan, I love the Venn diagram comparison. <laughs> I have not heard Especially that ever in my life. Yeah. 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 I feel like I need to draw it on a whiteboard somewhere. I will <laughs> say that I, I feel spectacularly lucky. And again, not planned, but lucky in terms of how my career unfolded. And what I learned from the many, many, many years on the ad agency side running businesses was this idea of how to thrive with scarcity. So ad agencies are famous for never enough resources, never enough budget, never enough information, yet you need to make magic happen. And so that instills a lot of resiliency and a lot of can-do capabilities in terms of delivering despite the circumstances, which are invaluable skills. On the client side, what I learned was how to be slightly more greedy about the quality of business insights that any marketer is ever given. So understanding what you're actually trying to solve, not what you're being told to solve necessarily, but getting boring into the true business problem is the only way you can succeed in marketing. And what I found in my first client side stint at MasterCard was that any question I had about any economic angle on the business problem was literally a phone call away. I could call the person in charge of the business and get the answer. And that was absolutely mind-blowing, and it's a lesson that has helped me for this sort of second half of my career is making sure that you understand the right problem that you're solving. And doing that at a consulting organization is really, really useful because having served clients for so many years on the ad agency side, I have never lost that sense of what that is like. And of course, the work I'm doing with my team now at Accenture 
is trying to equip the practitioners of our trade to do their very best in the marketplace. And so I don't know how I could do that without having had the 20 plus years on the ad agency side where I was doing a similar task of connecting with clients, building credibility, having a good brand behind me that meant something to the clients that I was seeking and the clients I was handling. So I guess that's how I would describe my own Venn diagram. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Accenture, you know, you've got some somewhere near, I think, 469,000 employees across 200 cities globally. And I believe, if I get my numbers right, that you're directing somewhere around 1,000 marketers across the company in your current role. That's a big scope. That's a huge scope. What are your secrets to managing at that level of, of scope and complexity? Well, it's uh, such a good question, Alan, and it is a highly complex organization. And I think most organizations these days have a matrix one way or another. So what I found, especially coming in from the outside, was building peer relationships and understanding, if not every detail of the business, understanding the primary levers of what matters to Accenture was absolutely fundamental. And then quickly diagnosing, okay, what needs to happen? Moving forward, what needs to happen in order for us to, to really succeed? And one of the findings relatively early on was that Accenture is brilliant and unstoppable when we bring the best of Accenture, which is complicated, to our clients. When we bring piece parts to clients, not so great. And so the way marketing had naturally evolved over time was more optimized towards selling the piece parts. And so what we're doing now is we are redefining our organization so that we are actually equipped to sell the differentiators. And so that was a fundamental realization early on that I got only by spending a lot of time with my peers trying to figure out where are the pain points in the business. Then the second part I would say of organizing complex organizations is having a group around you, a leadership team that you could trust with your life. And in fact, I have that. And it is certainly among my direct reports whom I would trust with my life, but also deeply into the organization on special projects that are very high visibility, very high intensity, very, very difficult. We recently lost our absolutely beloved CEO parent non-term and uh, who had recently stepped down and understanding what happens when someone of that importance to the organization steps down and then dies was that's unprecedented. Very few people have ever had that experience. So pulling the right team together to do all that had to be done with military precision and with the right tone and manner globally was such a proof to me that I was surrounded by people I could trust with my own career, my own life, so to speak. And that really has been absolutely essential to build that level of strength or to identify that you have that level of strength around you and then to really leverage those people and those skills and those talents. Got it. Uh, yeah, especially the notion of that tight leadership group that you can trust with your life, so so to speak, like you just said. I was on a 
meeting a call virtual group that got together with Greg Welch recently. You may know him from Spencer Stewart. And we were talking about picking the team, the, the leadership team. And he used the analogy, I think he was leveraging from a CEO, but he didn't name the person that they had this foxhole question. Right. <laughs> they actually would ask all of their their his direct reports, you know, who who would you not want in the foxhole with you? And usually those people were the leadership people that were left the organization after that CEO would take <laughs> over. <laughs> wow. So yeah. So it's quite 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 the uh dramatic first question from a new leader, but I thought it told a great story and, and highlights what you've just described, which is making sure you got the right people around you. Yes, it's so fundamental and it's it's nice to actually step by step back and reflect when you do have that what a phenomenal lever it is. You yes, can do practically yes. anything when you have that 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 wonderful esprit de corps and the right people with the right skills and more importantly the right motivation to work together. It is astonishing. There is nothing out of reach. I mean it- to your point, it makes everything easier. I mean, even communications, we're all global organizations, you know, one line communication can get misinterpreted pretty quickly. But if you've got that fundamental piece, most people just kind of intuitively know what you're, what you mean and what you need and they take action. So yeah, good. absolutely. Well, one of the areas I know that you, you know, is close to you and, and one that you're working on is the new view on how CMOs and fellow CMOs can lead companies on social issues. And in particular, maybe versus the CEO that may have taken those stands in the past. Can you give a little bit more context for other CMOs at other organizations, you know, how you're thinking about that and maybe how it plays out at Accenture? That's such a timely question, Alan. It used to be, even within recent years, that a marketer's number one question was, how do I prove out that the business is adding value? And that is switched to add something on top of it, which is, how can I demonstrate the values of the business on top of how the business is adding value? And that's not my opinion. That's proven out. Well, it is my opinion, but more to the point, it is proven out by any number of studies from the Edelman Trust Barometer through research that we've conducted with Forrester Forrester, through research we're doing on our own. And so what has now become true of CMOs, and I think probably also chief communications officers where the role is split, is that demonstrating an organization or a company's credentials as a world citizen is now part of the brand. It's not a separate task that you would do as a responsible company. It's part of the brand. And in fact, we have a message house, as many do, for the brand, and it has three pillars, and one of them is responsible business. It's that fundamental. And we see it on not even simply stated importance from clients and prospects about how do you decide what consulting company to pick, but we see it on a regression analysis basis, which to me makes it all the more true. And we see that ethics and social behavior is one of the top three drivers of consideration for consulting organizations among our our clients and our target clients. And that is amazing. I don't know that we would have seen that a handful of years ago. And so it does mean that any program that I'm thinking about 
and any brand overall brand argument that we're putting out into the marketplace must take stock of that and must deliver the answer to the question, okay, Accenture, what are your values? Gotcha. And what are the types of, how does that play out at Accenture, you know, in terms of campaigns or programs that you're, that you're thinking about or putting in place now? Well, a couple of things. I'll just use one or two examples. And one is that what Accenture is extremely good at is doing the kind of analysis that builds business cases. And for long, there's been conventional wisdom that hiring people with disabilities made, made sense in terms of this ourselves as, as good world citizens. But we were able to partner with a couple of organizations and do the business case that demonstrated the value of hiring more people with disabilities. The companies would perform better because of it. And so we were able to take our chief spokesperson, who's also our chief legal counsel, who's terrific on this topic, and get him out talking about the business case and the value of hiring people with disabilities. And at one point when we launched it, he was on stage with Ted Kennedy Jr., And of course, that got tons of attention because it was finally delivering the numbers behind why. Why do the right thing? Here are some numbers. And more recently launched on International Women's Day, we were able to publish a piece of research that drew the link between cultures of equality and orientation of companies towards innovating. And innovation is the holy grail for probably everyone in business, let alone outside of business right now. But we were able, again, to draw quantitative links based on the, on the work that we were doing. And there are a million other things that we're doing, tech for good initiatives, apprenticeship initiatives, many things on a local and global level. So we had a lot to talk about. And I feel spectacularly grateful that I'm at a place that has such an orientation and so much to talk about. And it's... Uh, it's up to my team and me to figure out what is the most compelling way to get those um, ideas across in the marketplace. I love the aspect that you're you're helping to build the business case, not only doing it, but you're building the business case for others to uh, to adopt those practices as well. That's that's fantastic. Not to keep drawing all these parallels, but it reminds me of um, I'm going to blank on his name, but the CEO of the Nature Conservancy. And his ability to make an ROI argument for conserving land and the, the notion of conservancy. That's terrific. Yeah. And, and, and the funny thing is he was a Goldman, a Goldman Sachs banker before becoming the, uh, the CEO of the Nature Conservancy, which is also an interesting twist. That's great background, actually, isn't it? <laughs> right, right. But uh, it, this notion of making a business case, I mean, I think it empowers others. So not, you, I, I like it in terms of what you're doing and I'm not just blowing praise your way, but because it empowers others to adopt those same practices. So it's, it's, it's multiplying effect. That's good to hear. And I, I'll take praise, Alan, no need to have that done. <laughs> you know, I'm good with praise. So, so like yeah. yeah. All right. I'll, I'll keep it going. I'll keep it going. <laughs> One of, um, and I believe you know this person as well, somebody that's been on the show before, Peter Horst, has written a book around, you know, fake news and, and being able to take a stand and that he talks quite a bit in the book and on the podcast about getting your values right as a company first, right? Before you can really go out into the marketplace. And I'm just curious, I mean, you, you're such a large organization. How does that manifest itself? Because I I would imagine you've got 
the opinions of the United Nations under your umbrella. So it's not an easy task, I imagine. Well, and it, Peter is terrific, by the way, so it's great to hear his name. The, uh, it's a very interesting moment in time. And given in many markets so much polarization, what we have found is that there are fundamental values that we easily share. And then there are opinions on politics, which were inherently as polarized in all likelihood as, as the world around us. So what we have found is that this idea of what your values are and having values and being open about them is something that employees are actually demanding. And I think that's a sign of the times that you don't push out values. Values are expected. And it's not simply from millennials. It is expected from millennials, but it's expected from any every generation in the workplace. And what I recently learned from the Edelman Trust Barometer is that there is a very high degree of trust from employees to employers, as most institutions, nearly all globally, have been on a downward trend for many decades. That is the place where you still have trust. And so behaving in trustworthy ways is absolutely essential to be the talent magnet that I do believe we are. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we have to make this way too long an answer, but back to that message house that we have about what our brand is all about that has our client value proposition, it has responsible business, the middle pillar is all about our talent brand. And what the talent brand is all about is a global collective of diverse people innovating together. So the principles that we study around culture of equality and what that means are principles that we are living. And we talk about them a lot. And they have created an environment that, as we look at our own research, creates this culture of innovation, which is our promise to what we deliver to clients. So I'll That's stop great. there, but it's a yeah. really, really big topic area. And it's it's never been more relevant. I really don't think it's ever been more relevant in my lifetime in, in marketing. Yeah, no, I, I, I 100% agree. And so let's talk about the talent brand, because I've heard that term before. But a lot of times it's it's a split conversation. It's partly an HR conversation and partly a marketing or communications conversation. Just curious, what goes into a talent brand from your perspective? And is there a reason why you know marketing and marketing communications is is driving that at Accenture? 
Talent brand, we believe, is comprised of three things. It's the people you have and hire. It is the purpose of your organization overall, and it's the culture that you create. And very early on, I was in conversations with uh, one of my colleagues who runs this enormous talent organization that we have at Accenture. And it became clear that we, we hadn't articulated, we in marketing had not articulated the talent brand. And beyond that, because we are 467,000 plus people, our talent brand actually is our brand. There's no difference. And I think that's right. true with any professional services organization, maybe less so in places that are less dependent on human talent, but we're, that's what we are. We're all about human talent. And so what we did is we actually got a small group of people together and of leaders throughout the talent organization but moderated by my team and me to walk through, okay, what is our talent brand? And it was, it was an archaeological dig. It wasn't making it up. It was finding it and articulating it so that all of the many, many programs, many of which are HR programs, some of which are brand programs, and a lot are recruiting programs because we recruit tens of thousands of people a year. And so having a very compelling point of view to share with the people we're trying to hire, given that it is a competitive talent market, was really, really essential. And that's how it's working. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, you've mentioned now in a couple of examples, these bridges that you're building with your peers and the CMO role, as you know, <laughs> you live this every day. It's a very unique one. You know, you've got to have the external market pulse of what's going on out in the marketplace with customers and clients and competitors, et cetera. You're building these internal bridges, whether it's around the things that you want to take a stand on as an organization or whether it's the talent brand and the HR and culture groups. What do you see or how would you describe the role of CMO in, in driving this collaboration? Because a lot of times, the many that I speak to, it feels like the role itself is the glue between a lot of different functions. And when you got a great collaborators inside your organization, it goes well. And when you don't, you know, that's the source of pain, right? Oh, yes. um, so yeah. how do you see that, the role itself and, and its drive towards collaboration? Well, we recently, as we always do, did some research and dubbed the CMO the chief collaboration officer for all the points that you just made, Alan. And my observation over time has been, it used to be that the CMO, the, the best friend of the CMO needed to be the CTO and the CIO as we got into the transformation of media consumption into a digital era. Now, we would argue that we're in a post-digital era. And we, we, the CMO community, need to have new friends. And so some of those new best friends are head of talent or head of people in your organization. It would be the chief ethics officer. And in my case, the chief legal counsel is one of my best buddies because we collaborate on what's going on with government relations and what's going on in ethics. So you need to keep your former friends, the CTO and CIO, because post-digital means Digital is how we operate, not that it went away, but you add on the new friends because the CMO, to your point, is well positioned to understand reactions from the outside world and constituents, but is one of the few areas in any organization that works and has a responsibility across the entire organization. And as things like responsible business and talent brand become more and more important, 
that leads to absolutely essential new relationships. And they are all collaborative. When they work well, they are highly collaborative. Right. Is there any best practices you might recommend to, say, other CMOs, you know, how to build those bridges? Maybe when you're new or maybe, you know, new to the role or, you know, it's the first time you've worked with the chief legal officer, as an example. Being new to the role is a perfect starting point for a CMO or new to the organization because you have license to say, tell me what you are thinking about. What are you worried about? What are the challenges of your function? Please give me comments about how you see my group working. And it really is the old fashioned skill of relationship building and having the curiosity to, to both ask the questions and listen to the answers. And what I have found in, as I've taken new roles over time, that that is the indispensable, absolute first step. And at one point, I think I was at Ogilvy, we were given a very cheesy desk, I don't know, plaque, incredibly corny, yet I still remember it many, many, many years later, which is, it was in reference to clients, but I could fill in, I could replace client with, with peer colleagues. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So I would say some the version of that that works for me now is people don't know how much you know until they know that you understand what they're all about and what they're trying to achieve. And that's really yeah. the only way to, to form the relationships that, which then equip you to do your job well. That's said so well. I mean, it's, uh, it's empathy at the end of the day, right? Yes, yeah. Really, really just putting yourself and not necessarily in someone else's shoes, but truly understanding that I, I love the, the, uh, you know, your thought about asking questions and <laughs> listening to the answers. Right? It's not going through the motions of asking the question. That's not the thing right. that works. It's actually getting the answers right, that, right. that arms you to then go forth and do good. Right. Well, this has been good. Let, let's switch gears because I love to get to know the person behind, you know, the role in this in the big company. And in that effort, I love asking this question to everybody that comes on lately. You know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? So my defining relationship as a child was with a remote island in upstate New York in the St. Lawrence River uh, between Canada and the U.S. And I spent a lot of time weekends and and weeks in the summer on this remote island with my family, which was totally off the power grid. So no electricity, no running water, very few, if any, creature comforts. And that was actually the defining influence. And of course, I never realized that until I was a full-grown adult and in the workplace, but it was how, how I've learned skills of resiliency and innovation, actually, it was through that experience. Wow, that's quite amazing. And and so it was was it planned? It was like a vacation. What? Also, it was a it was a strange and brilliant vision my parents had. My father used to fish in the St. Lawrence River, and there mm. there's a a group of islands called the Thousand Islands. And yes, the salad dressing is named after them. And some of them have power and electricity in houses, but the one that my parents decided to buy, and they're rarely available, was in the middle of the river, and it had literally nothing. It had a long dock. (laughs) And so they they built an outhouse, 
And that was it for at least the first 10 years. And we lived outside of Syracuse, so we could easily get there on weekends, a couple, couple of hours away, jump in a boat that we kept on the mainland, and then camped. And so hmm. upstate New York is not known for sun. It's known for lots of rain. So camping in the rain. But I learned how to, you know, <laughs> fish, swim, build fires, sleep outside on rocks. And it was an ongoing lesson in responsibility, adaptability, and resilience from the time I was six. Wow. I love that. I love that. <laughs> they, they, they need that camp now for adults. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Yes. <laughs> yes. Especially if there's no cell service, too. Like, oh, my gosh. The grid, <laughs> yeah. I feel in withdrawal already just hearing that phrase. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What advice if you were doing this all over again, you know, restarting your career at some, at some place, what what advice would you give your younger self? Well, so one thing I overlearned on the Island was independence. And it wasn't until relatively recently, I have to confess that I understood that asking for advice and coaching was not only okay, but it's a sign of strength. So for years upon years upon years, I thought I cannot possibly seek advice. It's a sign of weakness and not knowing what I, what I was doing. And then midway through, I had a wonderful client and she would routinely say, Amy, give me some coaching on this X, Y, or Z situation. And it was through that interaction that I realized, oh, wait, that's a, you can do that. You can do that. It doesn't say <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. And now at this advanced stage in my career, 30 plus years into the workplace, I readily go out and ask people, what do you think? What would you do? How would you advise me? What would you coach me to do? And if I had known that I can and should have been doing that, I think I would have avoided a lot of stress for quite a while. So that's the the downside of being too self-sufficient is failing to learn that lesson. Yeah, no, that's great advice. That's great advice. Well, what fuels you? What keeps you going these days? So I'm a big fan of uh, curiosity. And so having things to be curious about, having a certain amount of uncertainty and change, which then fuels curiosity, has driven me all of these many years. Um, I've got a low threshold for boredom. So I do seek experiences in the new. And in fact, one of the many book groups that I'm part of, I started a few years ago, And it's devoted to reading debut novels, just first novels, which is a leisure time manifestation of experiencing the new, is finding new voices and new modes and new views on the world. And then more concretely, I have a fabulous husband. I have two fabulous sons in their early 20s, and they are my absolute rocks and so that I guess that that's that's the long and the short of it. No, that's great. That's great. I don't know how you have time to be a part of reading groups, but I'm, I'm envious. <laughs> I miss a lot of them, but I try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that. Well, you know, s- stepping back from the job, um, and I know this is always a tricky question, especially for professional services folks. But marketers tend to be students of what's going on around them. So are there any brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should be taking notice of? Well, I think I'll answer. I'll, I'll take I'll take the cause, the cause out um, there you and, go. And, and answer <laughs> answer that one, Alan, which is I've been involved with one of the leading college access programs, which is called the Posse Foundation, 
for several years now as a writing coach, uh, a career coach, and uh, helping to select the posse scholars. And I think this whole idea of college access and how to combat or how to handle socioeconomic diversity, among other forms of diversity, is very much of our moment. And any involvement on things like that, where you have the opportunity to actually make a lifelong impact, which then has future generational impact, is important right now. And there are other causes that are really, really important right now, but I would say that's the one that certainly in the United States is very much of the moment. And there's some recent scandals have been written about in which um, people who were already going to go to college based on their circumstances of birth and family situations were getting even more help that was uh, not okay. So I am very interested in, in programs, well, a little bit like the apprenticeship programs that we do here at Accenture. Enlarge, enlarge the experience of people and give more opportunities to more people who wouldn't have normally had them available. That's great. That's great. And you, you hit on it kind of tangentially uh, an issue that oddly enough has come up, I don't know, probably half a dozen times on the podcast from marketers, from Phil Kotler, you know, wrote the management marketing book that we all started with, right, in the 70s. Right. Some, you know, more more recent people, which is this notion of the the income inequality and socioeconomic instability yes. that's going on in the world. Yeah, it's a it, it's a it's a big question, but it, it's funny. I mean, it's it, funny, not funny. I should say that it it's come up so many times on the podcast. So I agree. That is, I mean, it's certainly a major factor of our time. But it's interesting that marketers are noting it in particular. Yeah, yeah, mm. and it, you know, luminaries. I would say. I mean, the other person that comes to mind that it, it did come up with was Seth Godin as yes, well. Yes, yes. Maybe it's because we're attuned to demand, and and obviously, disposable incomes is a part of that if you're in the consumer business. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it is interesting. Very is true. interesting. Well, last question for you. You know, what what do you see the future of marketing looking like? Our chief technology officer came out with a book about a year ago called Human and Machine, which discusses what you would think about. I think the future of marketing is captured by the title of his book because the technical skills of how you reach people, how you measure your efficacy in doing so, are technical. And they're very real and very important. But the human part is not going away. And if anything, it is getting more important. And I'm a student of the value of a liberal arts education having benefited from one. So I have an eagle eye on other people saying the same thing. And there are more people talking about the value of a curriculum that would teach you how to communicate, how to talk, importantly, how to write. When you consider how much is is conducted in writing, non-face-to-face, how you interact, how you express yourself, all of these items, the more technical we become, the more important the human element becomes. And I think that is the future of marketing is marriage of both. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Alan. I appreciate you having me and and thank you for your extremely thoughtful uh, questions. I really enjoyed it. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. 
If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Marketing Today.